0: I think obstacle course racing is the most round, well-rounded sport because you do have things like hand-eye coordination. If you throw a spear or something, um, you have uh, weight carry. You need to carry weight, lift, lift and pull things that you would normally do in a in your day-to-day life, whether you know it or not. Like lifting something onto a high shelf, that's that's an actual movement that humans do. Climbing over something, going up and downstairs, these are actual human movements, and they're all packaged up in fun stuff. Basically, a giant playground, and including like slides and, and climbs and nets and a frames and all these kind of cool things that are made up.
1: Hey, friends! Welcome to this week's episode of the Human Podcast. This is your host Jeffrey Wu. You've heard of Spartan races, Tough Mudders, and the popular TV series Ninja Warrior. These activities are sports actually all fall under the umbrella of obstacle course racing. In 2014, the World Obstacle Course Racing Federation was formed as the international governing body to supervise and sanction the sport. And in this episode, I speak with the president, Ian Adamson. He's an experienced and world record-breaking adventure racer. We touched upon the history of the sport with its roots in military training. We talk about Ian's war stories as an obstacle course racer, discuss his nutrition and recovery strategies, and ultimately the explosive growth and popularity of the sport. Hope you guys enjoy the show and learn something new. Hey, Ian, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you so much.
1: So adventure racing, obstacle course racing. I did, actually did my first Spartan race at the San Francisco Giant Stadium about six months ago. It was our company and a few of us decided to do a Spartan race together. For the folks who haven't, Tried Spartan races or done tough mutters or don't know what adventure races are? Can you describe this new sport?
0: Uh, that's a good question. It's pretty much what people have been doing since the dawn of time. But with our ability now, and certainly in industrialized and advanced countries or more economically advantageous countries, we have more leisure time. So having leisure time, people tend to still be driven to do these adventurous things. A lot of obstacle course races today don't know any of the history. It's not new. This stuff has been around for a very, very long time. In the modern era, uh, obstacle competitions, as we recognize them today, were really formalized by the military. And the first military competitions were in the World Military Games, and it was 1946 that it became an actual event. It's actually a military pentathlon. And people these days, they see the military pentathlon runs, which are quite short. I think it's 600 meters, and they Mm. go... Very, very fast over a set of standard obstacles. Highly developed. Obstacles that everyone who does the Tough Mudder or Spartan race would recognize. Humans have been doing this for a really long time. And the formalized races most commonly today are recognized because of Tough Mudder and Spartan race who hit social media. Mm-hmm. That's really what did the resurgence. You know, everything's kind of cyclical. Right. So if you go back to the early stages, it was actually the late 1800s when it became a military thing. And then competition was formalized in 1946 tough guy emerged in 1986, and he was not the first, but he did stuff that really looks like today's races, the closest to today's races. Social media, I believe, really kicked it into gear, and it went from a few thousand people doing races around the world in what recognizes obstacle to, we think, about 20 million today. Yeah. And it's obvious, isn't it? You can watch TV and see something clipping channels, or it hits your social media feed and it spreads virally across the internet and then everyone knows about it and they go hey that looks great selfies and mud and random beer and fun
1: (laughs) yeah to me when i first heard about the sport it seemed like a nice day out right it's just like a fun adventurous day out in the sun and i remember the first time i met Joe Desena, who's the founder of spartan race he was telling me that i think a million people has done the spartan race that year and he wanted to make it an olympic sport and at first, I thought, I was like, what are you talking about? Are you, are you crazy? But then you realize that sports are just fairly arbitrary, right? Like, why is basketball an Olympic sport? Why is baseball? Why is tennis an Olympic sport, right? Like, these are all pretty arbitrary movements and techniques. And if you think about obstacle racing and just traversing territory, obstacle racing is a, a very primal movement. So it actually started making sense. Yeah, like, why not obstacle course racing as an Olympic sport?
0: I agree. It's uh, you're right about the nice day out. I think that's one of the things that really gives attraction is that it's a nice day out. There's a really nice day out, yeah. and you get to do it with your friends, and you get to have a beer at the end, and it's fun, and it's natural to how we move. I think that as humans, we do have a great capacity to run, move, climb, carry. That's what makes us human, and using that in a race, people don't necessarily understand why they like it, but it's because the exact same reason that kids play in the playground. If you take them to a playground, they don't sit and watch. They go and play on the stuff. Well, adults are no different. We just tend to get a little disconnect as we age with what is intrinsically fun for us and something that we do as humans. Yeah. So that's obviously one of the many reasons that makes it, to me, a real, tangible, fun, engaging activity, if you like.
1: Yeah. So would you describe for our audience here who might have done an obstacle course, right? Like, what are the main obstacles i know there's things like rope climbs or carries do you guys bucket that into different categories how do you think about it
0: formally there's no formal construct around what the obstacles are but i tend to say under over, through. Okay. so you go over something under something through something and then you carry something or lift or drag so there's weight typically involved useful stuff things that people would do in undeveloped countries in their daily routine they're going to carry water probably and firewood and they're going to maybe go up and down hills and they might have to run if they're late for something. So that's normal to what humans do in natural naturalish environment. And it's really no different. It's tapping into those human skills that we have as a very well-rounded human. Yeah. And I think obstacle course racing is the most well-rounded sport because you do have things like hand-eye coordination if you throw a spear or something. You have weight carry. You need to carry weight, lift and pull, things that you would normally do. In your day to day life, whether you know it or not, like lifting something onto a high shelf, that's an actual movement that humans do. Right. Climbing over something, go, going up and down stairs, these are actual human movements. And they're all packaged up in fun stuff, basically, giant playground. Yeah. And um, including like slides and, <laughs> and climbs and nets and A frames and all these kind of cool things that are made up, which also ends up being things like American Ninja Warrior does a very good job of compressing everything into a space that is very intense. Yeah.
1: You mentioned the military roots or one of the military inspirations of obstacle course racing. And I've had the honor to visit a couple Naval Special Warfare bases, both on Little Creek, Virginia and Coronado. And that obstacle course that they have the BUDS candidates go race through is such a central part of SEAL training. That just reminded me that yes like i've seen it with my eyes like they have like the logs that you crawl over and crawl under i mean if you just go on youtube and look at some of the buds obstacle courses it's like i think a publicly known challenge i'm curious what were the inspirations traversing through a battlefield you're just crawling and going under and over as you were saying i'm curious in terms of the military techniques how much of an interface are there with the best practice from the military with the athletes. Curious how much cross-pollination there is still.
0: Well, the the military obstacle courses have a very specific reason for what they do. It's because of, of combat readiness. Right. So if you look at the special forces, like the SEALs, the Rangers, and all of the other branches of the military, what they're doing is they're encapsulating things that they actually need. So they do it in a way that they can do in a very short space of time and then create a pass-fail basically, like if you can't do this, you're not ready. Right. So you gotta be ready,
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> you gotta pass it. Yeah. And then the modern obstacle course race elements have borrowed heavily from military. The first one to really do it in a big way was Tough Guy out in England in okay. 1986, and he was recreating the trenches of warfare in the First World War, amongst other things, but then started adding in these kind of military-like training obstacles. Yeah. So that's the military tie. And then the sorry, root of that goes back to a French guy in about 1899, I think, who was looking at functional training for all humans. And it was the common route, interestingly, to parkour, kind of this human movement.
1: Yeah, parkour um, looks really fun too.
0: Yeah. And yeah. there is a relationship that most people are not aware of. You know, so we're 100 years past that now, but right. they kind of diverged. And one went to the military training route. And then parkour was more of this overall human training thing, which has evolved to now become, in some cases, competition, because they also are in the system for recognition by the Olympic Committee to be uh, recognized as a sport. And that's where you asked an earlier question, what makes something a sport? Right. Well, there is a big difference between an activity and a sport. And this causes a lot of conversation around obstacle course racing, because some people, quite rightly in some respects, will say, well, it shouldn't be a sport. We don't do that. This is our thing. We do this. That's not what we do. To me, my answer to that is, well, their concern appears to be formalizing the structure around a sport uh, includes creating standards, but the standards are not what a lot of people think of. The standards are to make the sport safer, cheaper, more accessible uh, for most people. And that really means you have a general structure around the standards of, is that obstacle safely designed, constructed, and maintained? That's mm-hmm. the standard. It doesn't change the obstacle. allows the race producers to make whatever obstacles they want, provided it doesn't fall down and kill someone. So that's the standard. Another standard would be a standard of medical care. So you're going to have things like, well, if the water is more than six inches deep and you can't see the person, then you have to have stuff around that to make sure that the People don't die in the water, right. and you have a minimum level of medical, emergency medical services around that, and then protocols to deal with it. Yeah. They're safety things that do not affect the race, other than make it safer. Yeah. Making things safer also drives down the insurance costs. That makes them cheaper. Hmm. So when people say, well, you know, you're going to wreck the sport by standardizing it, not standardizing the nature of these evolving things, this kind of dynamic growing animal of obstacle course racing, which goes off in unexpected directions. That's not what it is. So the structure is different. The structure of sport is really affording the ability to get to a bigger platform yeah. and a route for people who want to compete to compete at a high level in a structural way so that it's accessible to absolutely everyone. I think
1: the argument that makes sense for me is that I'm going to pick on rowing because we have one of our colleagues on the team who rode for Great Britain as a double world champion rower, but no one watches rowing. Like I don't even know how many rowers there are. If 20 million people did obstacle course racing last year, in a lot of ways, obstacle course racing is a bigger sport than rowing, even though I, yeah. I personally love rowing. It's, it's like a fun activity and obviously a lot of history with the Oxford Cambridge race and, and all of that. But in the sense of sport and, and involving people, I think there's something towards the fact that sport is an activity or a competition they can do with other people, right? And there's clearly some signal that's going on that people are gravitating towards this modern sport of obstacle course racing yeah that, that's, that's the way i think about it it's like okay right. if people want to do this as an activity they want to compete in it like who are we to judge that this is a olympic level
0: sport and this is like a not olympic level sport and that's right and there's many sports and there's much recognition and there's all sorts of requirements to go around it when joe de came up with the proposal of take spartan race to the olympics structurally that's not a possibility because you can't take a brand to the Olympics. Yeah, you can't, be, you can't be a brand, you can't do it. There's no system structure or route to do that. Right. The sport is different, that's why you need to take things from being an activity, like a grouping of people doing a lot of stuff, which is what obstacle course racing arguably is, and then putting structure around it so that it is a sport. Now that's a complicated thing in and of itself, and it takes most activities, decades or even centuries, to, to get to that point. Yeah. We've gone about it a slightly different way. When I say we, is that I worked with Joe for a full year on figuring out if it was possible to take Spartan Race to the Olympics. Answer being no. But if you create the sport, then it is possible to get the sport recognized. And the sport is inclusive of everything. Yep. Meaning all the brands, all the advertisers, all the supporters, all the parties of interest, whether that's a training, safety, medical, it goes on and on and on. Right? Yep. Sport is big. If you can put all that together, and you do have a sport inclusive of all the brands the tide rises rapidly which of course floats all the boats so yep. everyone benefits yeah everything gets cheaper more accessible there's more media around it like this these kind of discussions are part of that media thing yeah and eventually done right if a sport can be created and then get recognized it has a shot potentially at getting a medal event at a, an Olympic games that's always a possibility out there somewhere yeah and if you do that then you're on a really big platform so then you've got five billion people watching you yeah and that drives money which drives prices down and makes them more accessible
1: yeah and i think it also just adds a legitimacy where it encourages more and more high schoolers middle schoolers to have like an obstacles course racing program i played tennis growing up and there's a tennis program at my high school. Pete Sampras's championship plaque is on my high school tennis court wall. And it's like, oh, like no, this is like legitimate use of a kid's time. Yeah, why why not obstacle course racing, right? I think you can make a similar argument perhaps with like esports, right? Like gaming is exploding. Whether that's going to be a sport or looks more like a chess, I think there's some discussion and nuance there. But I actually want to talk about your personal story. I know that you've been involved personally as an adventure racer yourself for for years, decades, right? How did you get into the
0: sport? I got in through friends. It was kind of car crash curiosity for me. I was supporting friends. It was 1984. Uh, I had some friends They were Olympians, actually, in uh, single sports, like uh, Nordic skiing. So they're very good athletes. (laughs) Uh, They were doing, back in the day, it was called multi-sport. It got changed to adventure racing as the common lexicon for describing the sport. But back in the day, we were doing this multi-sport thing. Yeah. which was really, for lack of other words, it's kind of wilderness obstacle course racing. And that had been, in the modern era, really started kicked around in the 1970s and started getting formalized right around 1979, 1980. So I got involved quite early. But as a support crew, they were sort of complex, still to this day in the adventure world, the wilderness side the sort of complex, and they requiring a lot of stuff. So this particular event was called Wild Trek in Australia in the southern alps which there is believe it or not snowy alps in australia i was going to say uh, so is so alps in
1: europe okay There's, i guess yep. the alp mountain
0: range extends under australia there are what they call the southern alps okay which is odd they're not very really big but they get snow <laughs> so okay we nordic we started nordic skiing yeah orienteering running not quite mountain biking the days in those days we used cross bikes as we didn't really have mountain bikes of any sort and then into wild water kayaking and it was a 2 day event uh, with map and compass and that was The obstacles being natural terrain, mountains, rivers, cliffs, all that kind of stuff. So that was my introduction. And I was supporting my friends. And they said, and I was looking at going three ways crazy. I don't think I will have any interest in doing that. And they said, well, you should just try it once. So next year, of course, there I am signed up at the start line. (laughs) And by the time I got to the finish of it, and I was 20, so I was doing triathlons and ultra distance kayaking things, but nothing compared. It was so hard. To this day, it was the hardest single like big thing that I'd done in one hit. Going up from doing something that might be like 10 hours long to 30 hours long is a big jump. yeah, And very intense because the legs are relatively short. Yeah, And, of course, I'm getting toward the finish. I'm thinking this is absolutely – this is foolish. I don't know why anyone would do this, and I'm (laughs) definitely not going to do it again. (laughs) Because they hand you a beer at the finish line, and then you drink your beer, and you go, that was great. That was great. (laughs) Yeah, that was fun. That was awesome. That's all over. Get Get the beer, and that's all over.
1: So I've stuck with it for 20 some years. That actually brings up an audience question. Someone was actually curious about the nighttime adventure. If you're doing an obstacle course race for 30 hours, you're going through the night. How can you see? Is it safe? Do you have a compass? I mean, how does it all work when you're in the pitch black darkness? Well, you you have lights.
0: Back in those days, they were not good. You know, it'd be a flashlight with a bulb that would burn out and double-D batteries or something. Yeah. These days it's much easier. And the technology has evolved with LEDs and lithium batteries to the point where it's, it's almost trivial. Right. Uh, it's very common too. You've got World's Toughest Mudder and you've got the Spartan Ultra and these are nighttime races. So they go through the night and the athletes are doing exactly what we were doing just with equipment that is one-third the weight or one-quarter right. the weight. We would actually carry, for longer races, we'd carry motorbike batteries. Huh. Um, and the motor <laughs> the motorbike batteries would then, we then have these little kind of motorbike headlamps Yeah. And the motorbike batteries are really heavy. So we would have to schlep these things around to keep light all night. Yeah, Of course, you can do that now in the size of your pen.
1: Right. Interesting. So to hopefully maybe answer some of the confusion, because when I did the Spartan race in the stadium, it was like a, I don't know, maybe like a five mile run around the stadium. I think people were finishing in an hour, an hour and a half. So those are on the relatively short side of an adventure obstacle course race. And it sounds like, there are, you know, multi-day ones. You know, what are the longest adventure course races that you guys, are, that you guys know about or are aware of or are involved
0: with? Well, it's probably worth going from this, the shortest stuff. Yeah. So we've formalized now uh, what we call Ninja OCR. So people are familiar with Ninja Warrior yep. on television and probably now Ninja versus Ninja. So if you look at Ninja versus Ninja, you actually, what you're seeing is head-to-head racing that can be put in a bracket format. Yep. And we actually have a rig with a partner down in Los Angeles who is a partner on the TV shows that is a competition rig. And we'll be rolling the rig out pretty soon. 100 meters, all obstacles, very fast. You can do it in about a minute if you're very, very quick. Uh, achievable for most people. So if you like Ninja Warrior and you go, I want to do that, that's your chance. And then that gives the ability to have you know, quite a large number of people go through these things. Right now we have two lanes, but the the goal is to have eight, just like you have in a swimming pool or a running track, Whoa. and then you've got eight people head to head, just like the hundred meters, right? <laughs> <Except now they're laughs> off yeah, yeah, super fun. It's great to watch. And then you've got track, so now you're talking about multiples of you know around a running track, yeah. four hundred meters, eight hundred meters, or well, six hundred. We did a six hundred a couple of years back, in Dallas, and just trialing it, but it worked out really well. And then to what people, most people do and understand. So now we're looking at basically cross country. The standard kind of distances, they say we've got sprints, about 3k, short course, about 5k, middle distance, about 10, and then, kind of go, and then long course and kind of goes up from there. And these are fairly well-established distances that a lot of events are doing right now and championship races. Yeah. So we have our European champs coming up in a few weeks in Denmark, and that'll have sprint, mixed relay on the sprint distance, and then standard distance of basically a 15k. Yeah. Uh, and that's a championship race. So, you'll see that established throughout the federations, which we never really talked about, but the sport requires uh, representation by the athletes. And it starts at the federation level. I'll get back to that in a minute. But so the distance and keep going up. Yeah. And now the, the well established ones 24 hours, World's Covers might have really established that. I And mean, that's been copied now a few times. And then you've got uh, ultra distance events. So, I guess the Spartan Ultra Beast would be a fairly good example as we're starting to get over. Technically, it's 42 kilometers, right? 26.2 miles, Mm -hmm. 42.2 kilometers. So that's technically an ultra. And then anything over that. I think Spartan takes it also to another level with their Agogi. So they're just getting longer and longer. And then the last distance or distances we have now kind of integrated back to kind of full circle, tying the loop together is uh, Expedition. So Expedition OCR is really what we would have called back in the day, multi-sport, or more recently in, like well, the 90s, then yeah. it became adventure racing. And there's an interesting thing with adventure racing, because we were he- doing full-on obstacle races. We called them sprints, but they were basically obstacle races with obstacles exactly the same as you'd see today. Huh. You know, rope climbs, cargo nets, A-frames, exactly the same things. And this started in the mid-90s. Right, They were full-on national series with national championships with television coverage and most people doing OCR don't even remember them now yeah. because it was, you know, that was, they made, they probably weren't born <laughs> and it was television. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of the extended endurance
1: ones just sound so primal. I think, I remember Joe was telling me about death race, which was like the most extreme version where you were like climbing rope for like 26 miles or something, like some absurd challenge. man, these are beasts of human beings to be able to like, climb a marathon or like crawl a marathon and then run a marathon it's like whoa there's some crazy humans out there
0: yeah and, the, and on the expedition, talking about long and crazy yeah. the expedition events we used to do very very long ones thousand uh, yeah. kilometers wow so that'd be about a 10-day race wow uh, for the winners so they were they were quite long these days they tend to settle out at about between 250 and 400 miles depending yeah. on the terrain the obstacles now are big. You're talking yeah. about some of that peak, uh, across that lake or ocean. They're the big obstacles yeah. that you see in natural terrain. And it has this whole other level of complexity that makes it quite inaccessible for most people. Right. Whereas an obstacle course race, you could probably do naked. You don't need yeah. anything. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to get off of
1: work for a couple of weeks. I mean, it's not going to be like an Olympic sport in any time soon. To like, <laughs> wanna... all right, do two weeks. <laughs> That's going to be as long as the whole Olympics itself, right? Like, run He's across the continent. Yeah. <laughs> Which could, could be cool. Like literally the first event is this extended adventure race. And the last meddling ceremony is this meddling, right? It's interesting. The marathon is like the last event in the Olympics, which is kind of like a nice closing touch. But you can imagine in some weird, absurd universe that the there's some event that takes the extent of the entire Olympic two weeks or three weeks that the
0: Olympics are going. That'd be kind of funny. We have... The first formalized Expedition OCR World Championships this year. Okay. It's September 6th through the 12th up in British Columbia. Okay. It's a well established event company that's been doing it since 2001. Yeah. So it's been around for a very long time. Something else that happened just last week was the Eco Challenge announced they're coming back in 2019.
1: Yes, that's actually one of the questions someone asked about the Eco Challenge and Bear Grills. Can you talk about that and explain that for our audience?
0: Well, I can't talk about it much. Okay. <laughs> At this Are, point, there's some logistical and corporate and financial things that have to be done, yeah. but the announcement's been made. So the original team from the Eco Challenge is back producing, and they, that's Mark Burnett Productions. So mo- a lot of people know Mark Burnett from Survivor. Well, these days. He's head of MGM Studios. He produced the Eco Challenge and then Survivor and The yep. Apprentice and yep. on, on, on kind of created reality television. So he's a very well-known, extremely savvy producer of events and shows as people probably recognize because they switch their TV on, they're probably watching a Mark Burnett show a lot of the time. Yeah. So the event formats expedition, it's or adventure racing, whatever you want to call it. It's right. the long, difficult wilderness, deep wilderness navigation, stressful stuff that creates great television. Yeah.
1: I can imagine that some of your best athletes there are gonna be ex special ops. I mean that's what that sounds like. I mean that's what they do. Right. That's how they train. Literally like here, take a backpack, eighty pounds and like walk across a mountain. You <laughs> would think so. You, you would think, would think so, so okay. But that's,
0: that's not how it planned out. Though. Really? So who are, the,
1: the, who are their best athletes? Are, where do they come from? Are these all, uh, triathletes? Like, who are you pulling uh, talent from?
0: Well, when I was racing, so we were, ultimately, we were Team Nike. Okay. And we were almost undefeated over about 20 years of hmm. uh, racing. And that's multiple races a year. Uh, but that's really a squad. We were a professional team. and We were full-on professionals. And we quickly figured out that we needed people who could win no matter what. And that ended up being world champions. So we would pull world champions in all sorts of sports. We had world champions in mountain biking, road cycling, orienteering, triathlon, biathlon, skiing, you name it. We had world champions who knew how they win. Yeah. And, that, and then we groomed and trained them basically to be strong in everything because you can't have one person weak in one thing. It just doesn't work. And people would think, oh, we need a navigator. Yeah. Well, you, no, actually, you need four navigators if you've got four people because right. you're going to get really tired at some point, and you're not always thinking straight. And you need people backing you up, and and it's the same for everything. Yeah. Uh, the goal was for every single person on our teams to be able to compete at a world championships in a single sport. Meaning, if you could go to the world mountain bike champs and actually qualify, you made the grade. But you also had to do that in name a sport. You know, yeah. Kayaking, multi sports. Uh, in the peak of racing you're probably going to see the same thing emerge is it's going to be the same people who are just absolutely extraordinary athletes ex-olympians world champions that was driven by money and i think that'll happen again yeah yeah you know, prize money is a big attractor for competitive successful people and they yeah. like to win yeah yeah
1: i know fair enough i think a lot of soldiers would describe themselves as heavy duty trucks where athletes are like fine tuned ferraris right so I I can understand if you're pulling from world champion level athletes that are just professionally training just for, you know, adventure racing expedition, you'll do pretty well against military.
0: I can you see, see that. you see it in OCR already. You're yeah. actually seeing people who are winning consistently now at the top level of OCR. We've got Olympic medalists. Yeah. A lot of Nordic ski people, professional runners who compete at a very high level and can win in a single sport like uh, John Albner, uh, he's a world-class runner. Yeah. Lindsay Webster is, you know, she's a world-class Nordic skier. Right. And Zawana Kokomova from Eastern Europe, she was actually an Olympic medalist. Hmm. So you're talking, now we're starting to see some extraordinary athletes emerge. And yeah. you can see the difference because there's a big space between the top level right now and then even the next second top 10, if you like, they're they're not quite as close. Yeah. <laughs> big spread I mean, after the top 10 yeah. or even the top five which
1: happens in most distributions across any discipline right there's just ends up being a Pareto rule where the best of the best are you know just exponentially better than everyone else and you have a big clumping towards the tail right like this long tail so yeah, uh, I think it's, a, yeah. it's
0: probably a bell curve But yeah. and you're exactly right we look at the, the end of the curve yeah kind of to me that's kind of inspirational maybe aspirational for some people who are yeah. good enough and then Everyone else is perspirational, which is kind of the goal. Yeah. So Lizzie
1: wrote in from an email and wanted to ask you, especially for obstacle course racing, what are your best or favorite recovery practices? This might be just consistent with like standard best care, but I'm curious if anything that you picked up that's specific towards the types of movements that an obstacle course race would entail.
0: Well, for recovery, we're really talking about sleep. Okay. as much as anything else. Yeah. So you go through phases after stressing your body. The goal for workout is to stress yourself enough so that you super compensate, meaning you overcompensate a little bit from the stress and get a little bit stronger. You can look at it in several ways. If you don't stress hard enough, so you just kind of go out for an easy something, you're not stressing enough to get a, a super compensation, meaning more than just recover back to where you were. Right. So you need to stress pretty hard, but not so much that so you get so much damage that you can't recover. So that's right. the other mistake, that's overtraining, right? So the trick is train hard enough so you know it's stressful, but then allow enough time to recover fully and repair. So the key is repair. People don't often appreciate that. Now, repair is generally with the release of human growth hormone. So you're going to, you need that hormone to repair right. and grow. Yes. That's why it's called growth hormone. Yeah. Uh, that's released mostly when you sleep. Yep. Which is a paradox because if you work out hard, you often can't sleep. Yep. Because everything's elevated. You've got your metabolisms up, and your heart rate. I mean, it's actually difficult to sleep. Uh, However, having said that, I think for most people in a regular life where you've got work, family, all this kind of stuff, set aside a day, a week, maybe a Sunday. Say, this is my day. This is where I get to train properly and I get to recover properly. Part of that's hydration, nutrition. So you've got to have full ability to fuel your body with the nutrients and the calories to repair. So that long, hard, fun, real cut, which is quite often a race on a weekend. That's probably the hardest thing. Do the race, then have that really good, solid sleep afterwards uh, with the nutrition and full hydration beforehand so that you're not in deficit when you go to sleep. Yeah. Any specific diets
1: you're experimenting with, you know, ketogenic diets are fairly popular recently. Any specific devices? I'm wearing a heart rate variability tracking ring right now which is an interesting sleep tracker to tell how recovered I am, perhaps after a night of sleeping. I mean, I think what you say is like generally good advice. I think, I think it's absolutely right. I think it's very hard to find that edge. And I think that's in a lot of my conversation with athletes and coaches. How do you make sure that people are like oh, like training very, very hard on the hard days and then taking the easy days or recovery days really well? And it sounds like most people find this issue where they're not going hard enough on the hard days and getting too hard on the easy days. or not getting and you have overcompensation, supercompensation, you're not getting enough recovery. I think it's very hard. So some of the response has been, okay, let's look at devices or biomarkers. What are your thoughts there? Have you experimented with some of that yourself?
0: Well, i was fortunate to be in the medical space for a very, very long time. It's actually my formal training. I was biomedical engineering and sports medicine. So I use that as an athlete, (laughs) just following the biology to understand recovery, rest, recovery, sleep, and repair, all that kind of stuff my observation teaching it to physicians or teaching injury prevention and avoidance is that most people, they don't train with a low enough heart rate is one. And if you look at an obstacle course race, at least 80% of it is running. Yeah. Now, a lot of people do it. They don't really appreciate the running part, but that's probably what it is, is running with some obstacles in it, right? Yeah, obstacles that, that's basically
1: what I realized when <laughs> I was doing the Spartan race. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just running three miles today, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so what, what? consequently, people don't, People think that if they're not really stressed, they don't feel stressed. They're not training training hard enough, and it's absolutely wrong. Every successful professional I've met has been successful over time, and I'm talking my peers really, like Paul and Newby Fraser and Dave Allen and uh, Dave uh, Dave Scott and Mark Allen, those guys who won consistently over time over decades, and my peers as well in the adventure racing space is that knowing how to train slow is really important. It's a very, very low risk way to train with a very high gain. Intensity is extremely high risk with very low gain. Right. And the reality is you have to have a big aerobic development to support everything. Right. Are you you wearing a heart rate tracker? Are you
1: tracking to be under the aerobic threshold or anaerobic threshold? Or, Um, Or is this intuitive now? It's for you.
0: Uh, for me, it's intuitive, but okay. you know, I did have, I used heart rate monitors back in the day. I think for a lot of people, it's a really good tool, right. mostly to see that their, their heart rate is low enough. It really means you're, you're fully aerobic. So, that right. you're so training, what are you targeting, like systems. 140, 150 BPM? Very simple. Well, very It's age-based. Um, right, right, right. So, so the very, rule of thumb is 180
1: minus the number of years that you are, right? Is that's the right. Threshold. 180
0: minus your age is a very good rule of thumb right. for most people. It's a safe thing to do. No matter how good you are, it's still safe.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well, highly tuned athletes know how to go to the edge of that and maintain it. Or I mean, you, I you would basically it.
1: use like an RQ, you would actually go into a lab and actually measure the exact okay. threshold, right? We do a VO2 max test, respiratory quotient test to actually see when your fat metabolism switches into glucose metabolism. So you can actually do that. Like if you want to be a professional, go into a lab. But yeah, I think the, 180 minus the age is a good rule of thumb.
0: Well, that's another thing. So you just delved into nutrition, actually yeah. fuel, yeah. which delves into nutrition. So yeah. fuel becomes really interesting. And for a you mentioned race. ketogenic state, everyone's in a ketogenic state most of the time for whether they know it or not. But or a fat metabolizing state. Fat metabolizing state. That's right. correct. Yeah, right. fat metabolizing. Which is distinct from ketogenic state. That's correct. I, I, this is where we can <laughs> get really into the nuances <laughs> yes. of it or the stuff that actually matters. Yeah. For most people, the bottom line is, when you're lying in bed asleep, you're burning fat. Correct. And you're probably nibbling through your glycogen, but you're really burning fat because your heart rate is low and it's easier to metabolize your fat. So you have high level of mobilization of free fatty acids is what it's actually called. And now you're just kind of ticking along in your fat burning zone. Now the goal, as a good endurance athlete, is you want to be in there as much as possible no matter what you're doing. And that's a training effect and a dietary effect. Yeah. And more recently, so, as I just learned, because of you guys is, you can also take an oral nutrient, which does the same thing. Yeah. And that's remarkable to me. I mean, I love this kind of stuff as it's biology. Yeah. And then, of course, you want to put it into practice. But these <laughs> things, this kind of gives you the shortcut of how do you get there if you don't have the time or you want to kickstart your system or whatever the reason is. But you really want to get to that ability to have a fairly high output. So sub-threshold, many, if you're fully aerobic, you can hold a conversation aerobic That's right. what it is. Basic here's a basic rule. One eighty minus your age, that's a good one. Or can you say a complete sentence while you're exercising? Because if you can't, you're out of breath. Yeah. And if you're out of breath, you're going anaerobic. And if you're going anaerobic, you're not in your fat burning zone. So it's a very simple thing. Just be able to say complete sentences while you're exercising and you're good. Yeah. And what that does is it trains your body to access your stored fat while you're exercising. Which leads to another thing about nutrition, what do you eat when you compete? You really don't need to Excuse me. You don't need to eat anything much at all if you're well trained. Right. If you're habituated to, to doing what the nutrition companies typically tell you to do, eat a bunch of sugar packets. Eat sugar before you race, <laughs> and then you have to eat it while you race. Right. And then, if you do it while you race, you still have to eat more you while you race right. because you go into that constant hypoglycemic cycle, which is very difficult to break. Right. And it's a disaster because as you exercise, you're delivering the blood away from your digestive tract into your working muscles and you actually can't digest anything anyway so you get the kind of typical iron man gatorade belly where i have to have this gel at exactly this time and then drink this and they get the gatorade belly because they're not absorbing anything they're just creating a basketball of fluid in their stomach which they throw up and then they do it again year after year which is remarkable in itself
1: yeah i think that's one of the interesting areas that we've just understood a lot about the GI distress. I mean, when you're doing Ironmans or 20 hour, you know, 30 hour race, I'm sure that can, yeah, nutrition is like the third sport or the fourth part of the sport of that race, right? Like, I mean, especially if you're doing a 30 hour race, I'm I'm sure you're fueling at doing a 30 hour races. Like, I think if you're doing like a four hour race, you probably don't need to fuel, especially
0: if you're a fat adapted. But if you're doing a 30 hour race, you probably want to be fueling. It varies okay. per person. I'm pretty well fat adapted. So, for me, even these days, I have four hours, and I'm pretty good. Okay. Uh, it it, kind of, it goes into the fasting thing, too, because fasting, apart from being very good for you, is training your body to be fat adapted. Yeah. Because if you're fasting, what are you burning? You're burning your own fat. That's yep. it. That's what you have. So, having that fasting state for a while each day is quite good for you and is great for your training. Do you fast? Because it is training. I mean, how often I, do
1: you fast, or what's your fasting protocol?
0: Well, Only recently it's been a conscious thing, but my habit has always been I don't really like breakfast, so my preference would be an early-ish dinner, and then I probably wouldn't be hungry till midday, early afternoon. That's my habit, and that's what I tend to feel is good for me. I I can try and eat. I'll I'll eat sometimes early in the morning or in the morning at some point, and it's not comfortable. Yeah. might be delicious, but they're different things. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't I don't crave food at all, which which puts that. Let's say at six p.m. to midday, so that's an eighteen-hour daily okay. fast. And I think anything twelve to eighteen is probably quite good. Yeah. The more you can push it with comfort, and it was progressive. So if you do it and decide, okay, I'm going to go for twelve, and I'm just going to add an hour a week. Six weeks later, up to eighteen, you're good. Yep.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I have a I eat a daily sixteen eight, so sixteen-hour fasting window, and I usually do a 24 or 36 hour fast weekly. And I think exactly to your point, you're just training your body to be metabolically flexible, right? When you have carbs, you burn carbs, but when you don't have availability of glucose flow, you can actually switch into fat burning state, which is essentially, we're just training your body to be flexible.
0: Absolutely, as well, the evolutionary human did. Yeah. The evolutionary human did not have grocery stores or access to, or even agriculture. Yeah. And that's several hundred thousand years. Yeah. You know, minimum 100,000 years of, of human evolution until agriculture. So, for that 95,000 years, what did humans do? Yeah. Well, they certainly didn't go to the store and they definitely didn't. <laughs> I mean, none of that existed. So, what that doing, they were doing exactly what you described. Yeah. That's yeah. what I mean. We could talk designed. all
1: about intermittent fasting, ketogenic diet, all of that stuff. I <laughs> mean, that's in my wheelhouse, but I want to focus on obstacle course racing. And we actually have an audience question. Uh, Uncharted Fish asks, How did you personally approach obstacle course races? That's an interesting question because if I'm gearing up for a 30-hour race, I mean, I've never done that before. What is it like the day before? Are you stressed out? Are you sleeping well because you know you're going to basically exert yourself very heavily for the next day and a half? What's going through your head as you're preparing for the race? And then What do you think about when you're
0: just busting butt for 30 hours straight? Mental preparation is a training effect too. So being able to put yourself in the appropriate frame of mind is quite important. Sleeping before race is quite hard. I don't think anyone, I'd be surprised if anyone or many people sleep before races very well. So I always regard that as a, that's a kind of a wasted night or one that you you get something if you can, which is fine because you can operate quite effectively and you're just resting, you're not sleeping. Sure, you're resting, most people at least be horizontal with their eyes closed. Uh, which is fine, but getting to the start line and then it really gets down to what I believe is race strategy. And race strategy means don't go too fast too soon. Um, and almost everyone does. And my habit, even as a professional team, was to walk off the back of the start. Very common that we would mm. stand behind the start, behind the field, let them go. You're not going to win the race in the first 100 meters or kilometer or mile, even five miles or 10 miles if it's a really long race. It happens later if you pace yourself properly. So that means start slow, don't slow down. Ideally speed up a little bit. So negative splitting is a, typically a pretty quick race. yeah. And that's mentally difficult to do. Yeah. That's you know, pre- preparing yourself to be able to do it and understanding and having the knowledge that it's stressful to be behind. It's stressful to be behind the field. But it's not stressful to catch people and pass them if you can get if you can get yourself in that mindset you're good yeah. very difficult to do yeah i mean you see in the pros they'll, they'll just wrap it off the front some the very top level might be able to hold it and on for the win that's possible but not common it's possible
1: yeah interesting so i was talking to an ultra marathoner who runs 10 hour you know 100 milers i asked what do you think about i mean what are you thinking in a 30-hour competition
0: I mean, I I know
1: when I'm doing longer runs, I'm training for a half marathon, an hour and a half, two hours in your own head, not listening to music. I know personally, I just like think through, you know, the business, my relationships with people to think about my technique. Don't get too tired. Don't think about keeping the hips loose. What are you thinking about?
0: Well, I guess let's put it in the context of racing. When I was competitive and I raced, I trained. Every movement was for absolute maximum efficiency. Every single nuance of every movement. So it would be every step, every single thing we looked I was looking at, we were looking at would be because races can come down to seconds. Even over seven days, it was not uncommon to have a sprint for the finish. And at that point, as you sprint for the finish, you're thinking about the seconds or minutes you wasted somewhere else in the course. Yeah. So you never want to get to that point where you go, oh, Crap, you know, I shouldn't have done that. I should have just taken that line a little better. Right. And that's the nuance of racing, I think, at the top level. Or even for yourself, just to maximize, to know that you did the best you could do, which is really, to me, what racing So you're is on doing. point for 30 hours straight. You are thinking about your movement. Oh, yeah. In the really long races, days, or weeks, it's even more important. Yeah. So you start, if you're dipping your paddle for 100 kilometers a time in your canoe, you think about the precision of that movement. Because over a million strokes, it adds up. Yeah. If you're a little sloppy every stroke for a million strokes, that's a lot. That's a lot of waste. Yeah. So don't waste anything.
1: That's a good kick in the butt for me. I'm gonna try to be more intentional with my movement when I next run. I mean, like, it just
0: it depends.
1: But I think I'm cut from a smaller cloth. If I'm gonna do something, might as well train and do it well. And it sounds like if you can maintain focus for 30 hours straight, oftentimes if I'm just running in the morning, I'm not. Trying to win a race, I'm not like racing. I'm just trying to get you know ninety minutes of running in. Maybe, perhaps, if you just train intentionally and think about the movement and try to just bring yourself to the movement and not get distracted, that might be able to help you train more efficiently. Train I more. I think it intentionally. depends on your goals. Yeah,
0: because I mean, that's for efficiency and yeah. speed and doing the best you can. But everyone has a different reason. Sometimes yeah. it might just be because you want to think about work or you want to zone out and just clear your head for something else. In those cases, it's completely the opposite, right? You don't want to think about what you're doing. Fair enough, yeah. Then you just go out on a trail that you know you can't get lost on, and you make it back to the start, and you kind of wonder how you got there, and you go, that was great, (laughs) kind of cleared the mind. Yeah. So there are different reasons. So training and racing with purpose, but what that purpose is is up to the individual. Yeah. And I think most people, the meat of the bell curve for most of these races, I don't think people would care to have that precision in movement the entire way. Yeah, well said. There's certainly people who would, for sure. And then there's other people that just want to get a beer at the end. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I know in our audience, I think a lot of us would want to just, hey, if we're doing this, you might as well just do it right. I think it's a good goal to aspire towards. Disco Disco 14 asks, you've been a part of a good amount of TV shows based on all the obstacle race shows that are out there. I'm not sure how much experience you have, but if you have some experience, what is it like behind the curtains in some of these American Ninja or Ninja Warrior How does sport and media intertwine? This is someone who his background is, or her background, is someone who's just curious about both sport and media.
0: It depends on the show. So that is correct, yes. I've had a pretty good career that switched over fairly early in my racing career into event and television production, and then I stayed with that subsequently, so that's about 20 years now. The shows vary a lot, and if it's a pure sport show, like you're shooting the 100 meters in the Olympics, that's a race. Most of the, well, all the Olympic stuff are uh, competitions at a very high level. That's one style of capturing the images and the story for broadcast. And that's a world away from the other end of competition that's broadcast You're looking at reality shows. And then in the middle there, something is where you get things like obstacle course racing and American Ninja Warrior. Actually, that's a pretty good example. So American Ninja Warrior is pretty well known. A lot of people see it. They understand it. Uh, It is a real competition with very good athletes doing amazing things on incredible rigs. They're real athletes. It's kind of, yeah, I mean, I look at them, I'm kind of ooing and aahing going, This is unbelievable. Yeah. These guys are incredible, which they are. Yeah. But there's also a big element of production involved. And production, meaning the shows are produced. So they're very carefully crafted to capture the best story for the show, whatever that is. Right. In American Ninja Warrior, obviously, it's a competition, someone wins. But there's also the crash and burns, the splashing, and the the bumps and the scrapes and the failures and the slips and and that's part of the story, and the nature of the events are that will happen, and that's obstacle course racing very accurately described is that everyone going out on the course, whether they're the the top athlete in the world, whether it's name some athletes, Rhea Kobal, face standing, Lindsay Webster and the females, they you know they're, they're battling it out, and they know they can slip, they could slip on a rope, they could miss a spear throw, they could drop a weight they could I mean there's all sorts of things that can happen. And that makes for interesting television and makes for good stories, especially when it gets tight. And then this person won on this race, and that person won on the next race, and it just goes on and on.
2: Yeah.
0: So the shows run the gamut of pure sport to something fully produced or even just reality, which in a lot of cases is completely manufactured. Right. For the purposes of obstacle course racing, they mostly race with some great stories because the very nature of the sport uh, lends itself to this really crazy stuff happening which is exciting and fun. And we know that as athletes, right, you get into the course and it's always something unexpected, yeah. it's great.
1: Do you have a personal scary story or a most memorable story you can share?
0: Oh, good grief. <laughs> I'm sure you have Every many, if
1: you, yeah, I'm sure you have many, but I just, just <laughs> wanna highlight you know, one, one, one story here.
0: I'll describe one of the races we did, which was just, a, oh, it was an absolute cracker. This thing was crazy. It was the Ray Gawais in 1998. And we started at the head of the Amazon in Ecuador, climbed out of the Amazon basin up to the Valley of the Volcanoes, which is this ring of live volcanoes, and then summited Mount Cotopaxi, which is the world's highest active volcano. It's 20,000 feet, effectively. I think it's 19,730 feet or something. And it has a kind of ice cream cone on the top of ice. So it kind of looks like an ice cream cone, right? <laughs> Except that, that ice cream cone is a <laughs> solid, slick ice. because The volcano is hot and the snow is cold. Yeah. And uh, oh, a 1,000 feet of it. Uh, at the top of this twenty thousand foot volcano, and most people, if they summit, if they can summit Cotopaxi, which is not the rule, but if you can do it, it's going to take you about three weeks. So we okay. did in seventeen hours, and then we continued down the Pacific coast, and,
1: and no altitude sickness, or acclimatization. Oh yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah. Pretty so bad. you were kind
0: of, so you just powered through up it. and down. Okay, uh, up and down. Yeah, Ooh. it was pretty bad. It yeah. was, uh, it was I- incredibly memorable. <laughs> so that's what uh, that was, and then down the Pacific Coast, it was. It was, seven, it was a ten-day race. It was almost a sprint to the finish with the the top teams. So we <laughs> won, fortunately. That was just crazy.
1: <laughs> this sounds fun. I think, like me, a year ago would have been like, "You guys are just crazy. What are you talking about? You guys are nuts." But I, I think. Speaking with folks like yourself, I mean, I think it just sounds like an adventure. It sounds fun.
0: It's, yeah, it was. I mean, that's why I call it adventure racing. It was. Yeah. I call it paid to play. It was yeah. stressful and it was hard. And we got to the point where we looked forward to the suffering. I think that's necessary to really enjoy the sport. You have to like suffering at some yeah. level. We all do, right? You go into a. I think. Matter.
1: I think everyone likes to accomplish a challenge. I don't know if people like suffering, but I think everyone. I don't know if everyone would say they like suffering,
0: but I would say that everyone likes accomplishing a challenge. I think everyone likes the effect of it. So think of your first tough mudder. Probably didn't know what to expect. Right. You go into the event and it's ten miles and you go, Oh and you kinda of realise you haven't run ever ten miles ever. Yeah. And you gotta do all this other stuff and you climb a mountain on the way through and you go, Oh my gosh, that was and the time you're just hurting like crazy. Right. But the net experience is exceptional. Yeah. The harder it is, the better it gets. Or the better it was. So I guess yeah. is the, the stock phrase. The harder yeah. it is, the better it was something like that and yeah. that actually describes human nature too i hope, which is so. Also the addictive I hope so i hope so i which i hope
1: so i think there are certain people that are wired that way i hope that it's really everyone that's wired that way and perhaps the culture around the society around us has made us a little bit soft right i think most people are very coddled and i hope something like the sport that you're creating can encourage people to get out there and challenge themselves at least that's my hope with the work that we do can we push people to be better versions of themselves
0: so i want to talk yeah.
1: briefly about what the sport
0: is yeah yeah so we've talked about kind of events the yeah. the reality is the sport it's a federative system and that's democratic and it's federative because the representation is we call it by and for the athletes mm-hmm. The members of the international federation are the national federations. The members of the national federations are the athletes. The athletes run everything from the bottom up. So national federations only exist because of the body of athletes in that country that are on everything in the federation in the country. And they're non-profits. It's all volunteer run. Sometimes they employ a a small paid staff to run stuff. And then they are the members of the international federation. So the members are ultimately still representing the athletes. It's representing for the athletes, for and by the athletes. A lot of people don't understand that. Mm-hmm. They'll look at me and they say, what makes you the president of something? Well, if you start your own company or organization of any form, the first person who starts it kind of has to run it. There's right. there's only one person to start with. And it was Joe DeSena's idea, but you know, within a year it was it couldn't be his organization. So it had to be formed properly, which is a nonprofit. Now we're actually found where a non-profit under Swiss law in Switzerland, because that's what we really have to do as a sport organization. It's the right place and the right laws and all that kind of stuff. So we're a Swiss non-profit and we're a federative organization representing athletes through the national federations and then providing them the benefits of as we put it all together. And that's a long way of saying, look, it's about the athletes. It's about you guys yeah. and girls. If you want to be involved, it's yours. It's for you. It's by you. You get to vote. You get to represent. You, If you get an interest in running stuff, you get to do that very simple system, uh, very effective. And to start off with, there's no money at all, which people start going, pay us some money. If you're the federation, pay us money. Go, all right. Well, when we make some, that would be great. We would love to, which is also something that we're, you know, in time, it does get to be to that point. But you then ask the obvious question, well, where do federations get money? And most don't have any money, actually. They are just kind of a bunch of volunteers putting sweat equity in. And that's what happens right now. So it's all sweat equity. And there's real hard costs. So at that level, at our level, it's all self-funded. Mm-hmm. And if you believe in this enough and you want to get involved, come on and bring your pocketbook with you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so how do people learn more about how to get involved? I mean, it sounds like a great opportunity to plug in at the ground floor, which I think could be a very exciting sport that is watched globally and hopefully in the Olympics.
0: How do, yeah, how do so people get involved? How do people find you? They get involved at the national level. So every, most countries now have national federation so they're usually obstacle course racing something ocr or usa ocr is the american one or the us one usa ocr obstacle sports canada is the canadian one and then we've got DOCRA, danish obstacle course racing and on and on there's 75 national member federations covers all of the countries pretty much with obstacle racing of any form you get involved with your national federation so volunteer yourself go in and get in a committee and you know become a member And then if you want to represent, then you can represent kind of up the ladder. And we're still looking for people. We're fairly well put together. We've got about 70 people in governance at the international level, representing all of the the five continental zones and most of the countries. But we're still looking for good, able, smart people who are passionate about the sport and they can bring something to the sport. It's necessary no matter where the sport is, because we want it to be safer, more accessible, cheaper, bigger media platform. We want all of that.
1: All right. Well said. I think we'll leave it at that. Thanks so much for taking the time, Ian. It's great to riff with you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks so much. I know a lot of you guys have been writing in at podcast.human.com for different questions or topics or subjects that you'd like myself and our research lead, Dr. Brianna, Subs to cover. So let's actually make a Q&A special episode to answer any and all of your questions relating to our own personal performance protocols our research and backgrounds as biohackers and scientists and business people to, you know, what's going on at human, you know, what products are we working on? What R&D are we working on? What customers, what are the feedback from the ketone ester, happy to address any and all questions. So, shoot us an email at podcast at and we'll, once we have a big bank of questions, we'll do a special episode. As always, please subscribe for future episodes of the Human Enhancement Podcast. Give us a five-star review on iTunes and send a screenshot to podcastathuman.com and we'll send you a free sprint mini, our acute Focus nootropic. Thanks so much and see you next time.